Well, have you ever been to a wedding and you heard that song playing? You had this couple up here dancing with each other, and, and it, it feels like such a romantic song until you read the words. Like, like here's this couple reading, like, every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you, my pretty. <laughs> So in our series, Get a Clue, we're looking at love styles, and what do you think that's the theme song for? General Victim, the Royal Vacillator, the Professor Pleaser, Captain Controller, or Master Avoider? Captain Controller, every move you make, every step you take, it's got to be determined by me, it's got to be evaluated by me, it's got to be approved by me. Now, we're not picking on anyone in this series, there's a little controller in all of us. And in a broken world, the bad things happen. How could you not want to control? And yet that same tendency that wants to control uh, life and manage life can be the same thing that damages the things we care about most. Our marriages, our, 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 our parenting, our friendships, our workplaces. So today as we look at what it means to overcome some controlling tendencies that we learn from our, our family of origin, I'd like to introduce to you our very own Captain Controller. Let's watch. Mystery? You call this a mystery? These detectives couldn't find their way out of a paper bag. (laughs) Some who done it. All right, step aside. I can take a look at any crime scene, organize the evidence, and crack the case just like that. The secret to my success? All the years I've spent in the study. I've trained my brain to be the ultimate navigation device, like a compass that points to true north. Some may say I tend to overanalyze things, but I say the best way to sail a relationship is to chart a course, get behind the helm, and point that rudder straight ahead. My wife says I tend to be a little too strict, a little too stern, with her and the kids. She says I need to relax. Relax? The world is a stormy ocean. You take your eye off the horizon for one second. And you run aground. So God talked about family being a place that we all grew up in where we learn how that when life's out of control, how to reach out for help, for comfort, for appreciation, for support, to be able to share times that we're feeling you know, out of control, and to learn how to lean on other people. And so family was supposed to be a place that we would learn how to process grief, process anger, process uncertainty and anxiety related to an out-of-control world. And so we've been looking at how modern psychological theory, attachment theory, has validated what the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years. That there's a certain cycle that we need to take our children through and that we needed to have gone through and most of us didn't. That when we had feelings, God designed family to be a safe place that we could express those needs and learn those needs and talk about those needs. And that our parents' response was to welcome those needs, help us process those in healthy ways, in which the child would have open expression, a full emotional spectrum, learning how to feel and deal with grief and annoyance and irritation and anxiety and frustration. And as parents learned to guide that process, it would lead to a parent being able to contain the needs in a way, express them appropriately and inappropriately, so that child would feel 
loved, honored, seen, and secure. If you came from an environment that has led you to be a controller, something broke in that cycle. In that cycle, there were several breaks. And in the break, several things happened. That you shared some feelings, and instead of your parents being able to help you process that and meet you where, it, where you were, they were overwhelmed by it. Or they thought that your feelings were a nuisance to them. Or, or they sort of shut you down. And so you had all this anxiety you don't know how to deal with or didn't know how to deal with as a kid. So your, your expression of that is it caused outrage or withdrawal because of how they responded. And therefore, there was neglect of your feelings and, and you felt very out of control. In fact, there's three things that can create a controller. One is a family that just doesn't teach you how to process your own emotions. So you have to control the things that you don't know how to deal with. Two, you can come from a place of just real neglect and real abuse. A real chaotic environment growing up can lead to you saying and making a vow to yourself, and this is what almost all of us as controllers did. We made a vow. I will never be out of control again, or I will never let anyone control me again. So controllers often come out of highly dominant, strict, legalistic, rules are more important than, than, than emotions, And because of that, you felt so out of control because of the strictness or the chaos. Or I've even got a friend who grew up in a very passive family that his parents didn't give any rules. And he didn't feel the security of knowing he was loved enough to have some structure. So he became a controller because he wanted to keep his kids from doing what he did. So there's ways we react to our upbringing. And that reaction keeps us from knowing how to process our own inner anxiety. So here's our premise today. Our marriages and our marriage problems didn't start in our marriage. And our marriage is usually as easy or as difficult as your childhood. And so God uses marriage as an opportunity, and God uses relationships as an opportunity to go back and relearn the things that you haven't learned yet. So today we're going to look at two controllers in the life of Isaac and three applications for the three of us today. And my hope is that we can begin to make some progress. In the same way last week we learned how avoiders can begin to make progress and not avoiding everything, I'm hoping that if you have controlling tendencies, you can get a little more open, a little more vulnerable, a little bit more self-aware. Now, our first controller we're going to look at is Rebecca. Now, if you remember, I said that these characters can be male or female. Rebecca is our controller for today, and she's married to a man named Isaac. Now, we don't know a lot about her background. We learned a lot about Isaac's background and the chaos of growing up with, with Hagar and with, with the turmoil caused by Sarah and Hagar and Abraham. We see a lot, not of her background, but of her behavior with Rebecca. And she is Mrs. Controlling, both in her marriage as well as in her parenting. We see her, because her husband can't deal with things directly and she doesn't know how to, she's always working around him. There's lies, there's deceptions, there's telling one son to lie to his dad when his, when his eyes are going bad. Because they don't know how to talk through issues, they manipulate around each other. And the more she controls, the more he avoids. And the more he avoids, the more she controls. And we talked about that dance last week. Notice here in their marriage is some of the tendencies to control you see in her. Rebecca's listening when Isaac spoke. And Isaac's telling Esau to go out and to, to shoot some game and to get the blessing. As she overhears this, she says to her other son, Jacob, who's going to be our vacillator, hey, I I want you to go do this, go do this, go do that. We're going to work together, the two of us are going to work together to manipulate out of dad the blessing. This is not like a case study for healthy marriage and family. 
But none of us are. And what we learn is that God works in the midst of all our dysfunction and brokenness. There's no perfect family. God loves to enter in. These are his chosen people, and he wants to help teach them how to love better. I uh, was reading just a really honest article by Rick Warren and his wife Kay. Now, Rick has written one of the most popular books probably in U.S. history besides the Bible. It's called Purpose Driven Life. And his wife Kay was interviewed recently to describe that they had been in marriage hell for so many years. What she shared in this article is that she grew up as a pastor's kid and had a lot of pressure to perform, a lot of pressure to be perfect. So much so that when she was molested by the janitor's son, she didn't feel like there was a place to go and talk about what happened to her. Because the emphasis in her household was external obedience, she didn't have a safe place to talk about this abuse. So she grew up with this secret inside her, this inner anxiety and hurt, which led to her babysitting, And when she babysat, she got exposed to pornography for the first time, and she became addicted to pornography as a woman. She was simultaneously enticed and repulsed as she began to get into this process. She met Rick. He was a very loving man, very kind man. And they got married, and on their honeymoon, immediately they started fighting about sex with all this unresolved issue. They fought about their arguments, and they fought about how they were having their arguments. Here's what she writes. Over time, we both grew as individuals and we sought counseling together. We began to experience healing in our marriage. Yes, we faced many rough patches over the decades in our marriage. And I'm so glad we stuck it through our painful first years. God has worked in our life together. And he's used our marriage struggles and failures to draw us closer to him and to each other. Throughout my decades of ministry, I've talked to hundreds of women and couples who were in lonely, unfulfilled marriages. Marriages in which their dreams had turned to dust, where the passion had long since been buried under the daily grind of careers, children, pressure, stress, and unfulfilled longings. Some of these marriages ended with a long bang, of, of, a loud bang of anger and bitterness, corroded any sense of decency and humanity and compassion for the other. Others ended with shock, soul-shattering pain, and disillusionment as betrayal made a mocking of the vows of faithfulness. Some ended with a quiet whisper, silence, as boredom, illness, financial stress, or any other myriad of issues had made dry brown grass on the other side of the fence that looks so much greener. I don't approach this subject of marriage from a Hallmark card version of marriage, but from the blood, sweat, and tears of the trenches where our marriage was forged and sustained. I know what it's like to choose to build our relationship, to seek marriage counseling again and again, to allow our small group and our family into, into the struggle, to determine one more time to say, let's start over and please forgive me. I was wrong, and I forgive you. I know what it's like to admit that my way isn't the only way to see the world and to try to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me, to choose to focus on what is good and right and honorable in my husband instead of what drives me crazy, to turn attraction to another man into attraction to my husband. I know what it's like to have vastly opposing opinions on how to handle and cope with a mental ill child, how fear and anxiety and panic threaten to swallow up normal life. To become consumed with the needs of one family member. I know what it's like to be cracked open by the catastrophic grief and to share with your spouse when you're so different. To figure out how to grieve and mourn together when your mentally ill child takes his own life in a violent way. 
and your grief is public because you're in ministry and your glass house fishbowl existence is fodder for scrolling headlines on CNN. And I just love how honest she is as a public figure to say, I had a lot of anxiety. And how could you not have that chaos growing up? The chaos to be perfect and the chaos of abuse with no safe place to process that anxiety. Well, we don't know Rebecca's background, but we certainly see her controlling in many, many different ways here. And the problem is if you grew up making a vow to yourself that I'm never going to be out of control, you basically are putting on glasses. I just talked to someone recently, and I said, what happens is when you've made a vow not to be controlled, you begin to see everything as control. You see control as control. I'm not going to let my spouse control me. But you also begin to magnify persuading as control, having a different opinion as control. Everything looks like control. Because of that inner anxiety and that vow not to be controlled, you begin to cause tension yourself. You're actually doing the very thing you hated being done to you. You're controlling others so that you won't feel controlled, which starts the cycle over again. Now with Rebecca, it shows up both in her parenting as well as her marriage. Now, another character we see in the story of Isaac is Rachel. And Rachel, we get a real insight into control here that I think is worth noting. So Rachel, our controller, Rebecca and Isaac have, a, have a, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, our vacillator, tries multiple marriages uh, through a whole series of dysfunction we'll get into in a few weeks. And hopefully by swapping spouses and, and swapping houses, he'll finally have his needs met. Well, one of his wife is, is a woman named Rachel. Actually, go back one. Name Rachel. Now, Rachel grew up in incredible chaos. Her father was a man named Laban, and he is a scoundrel. So much that her sister, Leah, was engaged to Jacob. But her dad decided to, instead of letting her sister marry him, she swap, he swapped sisters on the wedding night. And because in a patriarchal society she didn't have any you know, ability to, to push back on that, she finds herself married to her sister's fiancé, and then her dad demands him work another seven years before he can marry the sister he really liked. Can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine the need for control? Can you imagine the hurts that were deposited in her by growing up in that kind of environment? So much so that of the few conversations we have between Rachel and Jacob, we see she too has a need to control. See, at some point you you find yourself in a world that's out of control and she is now barren. And here's what the passage says. She's not able to have kids and so they're struggling through, as many couples do, infertility. She turns to her husband and says, Give me children or I'll die! To which he says, Am I in the place of God? And here's why controlling tendencies will ultimately destroy yourself, your marriage, and your family. You're putting yourself in the place of God. Only God can control people and circumstances. And as a controller, you're trying to control things only God can control. So what happens as a controller is either you try and control everything and drive people crazy, or you lay the expectation of controlling everything on your spouse, on your family member. And look how exasperated Jacob is. Am I in the place of God that I control whether or not you can get pregnant or not? To which she then follows a really bad family pattern 
of, I know, let's do what your great-grandpa did and have my maidservant sit on my lap after you impregnate her, and when the child comes out, it'll be mine. And we see these family systems and family behaviors, broken patterns repeated generation by generation. So part of beginning the process of getting free from control is saying, God, I have put myself in your place and I am not qualified for the job description. And the reason I've got so many ulcers and the reason I'm so worried and the reason I'm driving everybody crazy is because I'm asking people to control something that only you can control. And so the Bible uses the word repent, but it's actually an idea of turning around. I need to turn from and acknowledge that the real root of this is putting myself in the place of God. So, our two controllers, and now I want to talk about three applications. How do we begin to make progress in this? How do we, how do we get to move forward in these areas? I want to give you three applications. One, how do you do it with yourself? How do you circle the board to begin to investigate your own tendencies and how to get a little freer? Two, how do you do it with your kids? And thirdly, how do you do it with your spouse? So I want to begin with, with yourself. Even, even people who control a lot, they've got some self-awareness, mostly because their kids or their parents or their, or their bosses or their employees have told them their, their controlling tendencies. But in general, they don't really think you're a controller. You don't really think it's as bad as, as it might be. What you think is, why don't people listen to me? If people would just do what I said, and someone is telling a story and you're correcting their story because you want them to tell it right. And you genuinely, genuinely are trying to help. You generally are trying to make it better. Now, you're driving everybody crazy, but you don't see yourself as a controller. You see yourself as trying to help people do something right. And so part of this process is to spend some time in the kitchen with the wrench. Now, why do I say that? Well, when you have a dinner party, you don't invite people to your kitchen usually. You usually invite people to the, to the living room. You invite people over to the, to the billiard room. But the kitchen is where the mess usually is. The caterer stays in the kitchen and makes the mess. You don't show people the mess. And many of us as controllers, we have a carefully crafted image of ourselves we've made for the public to see in certain rooms. But we don't let them into the kitchen. And part of investigating yourself is beginning to say, I've got a lot of inner anxiety in me. And part of what's made me a controller is that I don't know how to deal with this anxiety any other way but to control people and circumstances. And the reason I mention the wrench is because the wrench is adjustable. We need to start making some adjustments. We need to spend some time, and that's what happens in the kitchen too, is there's plumbing in there, right? Some of us need to dig behind the walls and go, why am I so controlling? What is that anxiety I'm trying to deal with? What is that issue I'm trying to wrestle with? What's causing me to do this? And that's going to take some adjustments it's going to take some maybe pulling out some drywall in your own, in your own background. It might require a counselor. It might require some, some self-awareness that you need somebody to help you with to say, I need to look into this and figure out what's causing this in me. And what adjustments do I need to make in order to do this? Now, if you remember, in our opening week three weeks ago or two weeks ago, we talked about the emotional cup. And I talked about how there's only a certain amount of emotions that your, your heart can hold, that every human being can hold. 
And that when your needs, the need for appreciation, the need for comfort, all of these are biblical ideas that God has given of, of things that are important to us. When those needs aren't met, here's what happens in our heart. You start feeling hurt and disappointment. Then it gets filled up with anger. I'm angry you didn't give me comfort. I'm angry you didn't give me attention. I'm angry you don't listen very well. I'm angry you don't respect me. That then gets topped with guilt. Well, I'm sorry, with anxiety and fear. I'm anxious that I don't know how to deal with these feelings and emotions, which leads to guilt, which pushes all the positive emotions out. When you are in the kitchen, you're saying, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to ask God to help me figure out what is all that anxiety that I'm trying to maneuver and deal with through my control. So three, three lessons, just as you're investigating yourself. Number one, when you're mad as a controller, you're really sad. And that's just not psychobabble. When you're mad, yes, you're mad that they did whatever they did, but you're actually sad because you really wanted them to listen. You're mad they didn't listen, but you really wanted to connect. So when you're mad, realize you're really sad. What am I really sad about? What am I really anxious about? When you find yourself getting hysterical, where the emotion doesn't really fit the situation, when you're hysterical, it's usually historical. There's some inner anxiety in the past that has brought itself into the situation. Have you had that fight with your spouse? I know you don't fight with your spouse, but I occasionally do. And so when you fight with your spouse, you think you're talking about X. And 10 minutes later, we don't know where X went. Because you're talking about X to Y to Z to Delta to... You're like talking about what happened 12 years ago in your marriage and what your parents said to your brother at three Christmases ago and why you never... And how did we get here? Well, it got hysterical because it got historical. We've never learned how to listen. We've never learned how to express needs to one another. Third, control is a way of medicating. I've got to, I don't know how to deal with my pain, so I've got to control, keep anything bad from getting in here again. When I medicate, I need to investigate. I might medicate with pornography, I might medicate with drugs or alcohol, I might medicate with overspending or overshopping. But when you use a substance or an activity to keep from feeling a feeling you don't want to feel, it's no longer a substance or an activity. It's become a medication. And you're medicating or controlling some inner fear and anxiety. And when you medicate, it's time to investigate. Because you weren't taught, as most of us weren't, how to process your own needs and emotions, how to recognize what I feel, why I feel it, and where I need support. You haven't learned how to say to your spouse, hey, I'm feeling very unappreciated right now. Just because it's been a long day, I really need just some words of encouragement. That doesn't sound too hard. But it sounds like a foreign language, doesn't it? Versus, you never appreciate everything I do here. That's how we've learned to say it. And does it work very well? Do we keep doing it? Does it work very well? So we haven't learned how to express why we feel, what we feel, why we feel it, and where we need support. Now, because we didn't learn that, we've learned how to comfort ourselves. And you see this in Esau's life. Esau had to comfort himself because he didn't learn how to do it himself. And, as a controller, you don't want people in your life because they could deposit more pain in your life. And so sometimes you refuse comfort. You push people away. The very walls that protect you from being hurt become a fortress around your heart. Like Esau, he comforted himself because he didn't learn how to invite other people into that process. He didn't know how to open himself up to other people or let other people in. 
And because of that, he also refuses to be comforted many times. No, I'll take care of it myself. I'll take care of it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm self-dependent. Which doesn't create the kind of marriage he needs or wants. Now that's going to take work to spend some time in the kitchen, to look past the veneer and admit to yourself, as much as I look like I'm in control, I'm not in control. And there's a real mess back in the kitchen. And God, help me make some adjustments to figure out what is the anxiety I'm trying to control that I just need to be vulnerable. And and that's what a controller is afraid of the most, just like an avoider, vulnerability. It's much easier to look like you've got it all together than to admit you don't. The truth is, though, you don't. And I don't. And only the truth can set you free, Jesus says. Now, how do you do this with your kids? Well, one of the challenges is we start off with, if you, if you grew up as a controller, you didn't like being controlled, and you made that vow, I'm never going to control other people. I'm never going to be controlled by other people. And many controllers, when they have kids, they can't even identify with their kids' needs. They sort of shut off. In fact, most controllers can't even remember what it was like as a kid because they sort of blocked that part off. And so your kids remind you because nothing will remind you how out of control you are than having kids, right? Do you remember before you had kids all the great advice you had for people? Well, let me tell you this. When we have kids, they're never gonna, they're not gonna, they would never, they wouldn't say. Then you have kids. You're like, oh my goodness, it's like chaos. You go from the Ten Commandments of parenting to the five suggestions of parenting to the, this works sometimes, Right? <laughs> And that humility, but if you're a controller, you say, you know, my job is to make these kids tough, uh, to toughen them up the way I got toughened up. And this whole psychobabble nonsense about learning kids are emotions, oh my goodness, I didn't need that and I'm fine. And yet, you're doing to your kids the very thing that was done to you. You're controlling your kids the way you were controlled, all out of your anxiety of not wanting to be controlled. And so we looked at these different emotional needs. And so part of circling the board with your kids, we, we liken the clue board to having different emotional needs. And some of our kids prefer one room over another. So these all come out of the Bible. These are different needs that we all have. And we gave this out the first week. You can download this at horizoncc.com backslash get a clue. And many of you, you know, we actually ran all the, out of these the first week. To identify what your spouse's top three needs are and your kids' top three needs are. I actually had left one off the opening week. So one of my wife's and mine, for example, is the first, first one's acceptance. My wife needs me to accept her when she's at her worst, not at her best. So the time I most need God to help me meet her need is to give her unconditional love when she's having a bad moment or a bad day. The second one here is affection. To be able to express your affection. Honey, I really, really could, could use some affection. Honey, I'd love it if you just come over and give me a kiss or give me a hug. To express that rather than you never. Third, appreciation. And this is true of our kids. Each one of my kids had a different need. And trying to identify each of the kids' needs and, and how to speak into that and how to walk through that and to help them figure out what they need. I really need appreciation here. I really need respect here. The one I left off the board the first week is attention. Attention, which is one of my top one and my wife's top one. But it's very different from the two of us. For my wife, attention for me is I want my wife to be excited about what I'm excited about. Let me tell you about the sermon I'm working on. Let me tell you about the series. Let me tell you about the project I got going on. And what I need is for her to not give me um, suggestions to fix it. I'm okay with that later, actually, honestly. But what I need in this moment, I'll even say it. I say it now this way. Honey, I really need you to celebrate with me for a few minutes. Then I will always ask for critique. But if you get critique before you celebrate, I shut down. So I've learned how to express that. 
Honey, I need you to celebrate with me for a few moments. I remember my dad, who was a school teacher, always wanted to correct my papers because he's a school teacher. So I learned even as a kid to say, hey, dad, I just wrote a story. And I would say this. I'd say, I want you to be excited about the story before we talk about the grammar. And my dad would go, oh. And he, when I said it that way, he'd go, he'd read the story. I really like this character. I really like what you did here. Because I've been frustrated at times he didn't. And then I'd say, well, now, is there anything I need to work on? Well, sure, there's a few things here. But I tell you, learning how to express what I wanted and seeing my dad adapt to that, it, it filled me up. And so with your kids, to identify what are their top three on this list, ask them, what does it look like when I show you appreciation? What does it look like when, you, when I comfort you? Because it's going to be different based on their personalities and their ages. So identify those top three. But here's the thing. If you struggle with controlling tendencies, that sounds like a waste of time. My parents didn't do that for me because you're focused on external obedience. All that is just chaos that's causing me chaos and inner anxiety. So you're like, just knock it off, shut up, go to your room, do what I said. And that whole process of identifying what they're feeling, what to do, gets shut down because honestly, you don't want to deal with it. And I get it. I got a 20-year-old. I got an 18-year-old. I have an 8-year-old autistic son. I know what chaos is like when every three hours it's oh my goodness he got his pants off and we have to shampoo the carpet for the 2,000th time I get it but if you don't teach your kids these skills they're not going to have them for their marriages and they're not going to have it for their families and if you don't do the work that wasn't done for you you're not going to become the full person you can be God says he designed you needy with these needs There's Bible verses with each one of these God designed you as needy but we don't want to wrestle with our kids wrestle through what they're feeling wrestle with how to express it in a healthy way wrestle with the, the unhealthy ways they're doing it and so we just demand external obedience and we shortcut them doing self-discovery now God is the perfect parent and you know, God shows up when Jacob is, you know, doing all kinds of crazy things. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, Jacob, knock it off. He, he could have. Jacob, stop it. It says, the angel of the Lord. And this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is sort of a, a, a Bible phrase. It's called a theophanies, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. He's not this a angel of the Lord. He's the angel of the Lord, references God. So this is Jesus as the angel of the Lord comes down as the perfect father. And he doesn't say, Jacob, knock it off. He doesn't say, Jacob, go to your room. He wrestles with him all night long. And he wrestles with him until he discovers, Jacob, what he's really been looking for his whole life. Through his multiple marriages, through his crazy stealing of blessings over his life, what he's really needed his whole life is bless me. I want to be loved for who I am, not just for what I do. But look how God spent the time all night walking through. Do you think God needed to wrestle him all night to do this? Was God not strong enough to go, ping? No, God came down to his level, wrestled with him, engaged with him all night. Not because God needed it, because Jacob needed to discover my whole life has been about striving and pursuing and trying to manipulate my way into getting a blessing. And when he was able to articulate what he was feeling, I haven't felt very blessed. Why? My whole life I've had to steal it or get it because it wasn't given to me. Then God said, now, that's really what you need here. And God blessed him there at that very spot.
It takes time. It's inconvenient. It's a nuisance. But it's worth it. And for most of us, we never had this experience from our own parents. And so the only model we're going to have to look to is God. For God to say, I want to teach you to love the way I love. I weep with those who weep. I rejoice with those who rejoice. I teach my people how to grieve, how to be angry, yet in their anger do not sin. How do you teach that? That's not a short conversation. How to be angry and yet not be unhealthy with it. But God says in Ephesians, we need to teach our kids to do that. It's a process of wrestling with our kids. Lastly, we need to circle the board with our spouses. We need to learn how... Actually, let me tell you one more story before I say that. So my daughter is more like me. She's more of a pleaser. And my son's more like my wife, an avoider. And so even in my parenting, I've tried to give my daughter freedom to be mad at me. Because pleasers aren't allowed to be mad. They don't allow themselves to be mad. They're, they're happiness gurus and junkies. And so like my daughter, we went to buy a car. And I said, hey, are you good with this one? Yeah, I think I'm good with this one. Okay, great, let's buy it. And we're on our way home, and I could tell she was mad. And I said, honey, are you, are you mad? No, I'm fine. I said, honey, you don't seem fine. No, I just, I really feel like you rushed me into this. Well, didn't I ask you a couple times if you wanted it? Yeah, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. But dad, it's fine. And as a pleaser, I went, great, it's fine. Let's, I like it when people are fine. <laughs> but I went, it's not really fine. And I need to give my daughter permission to be angry at me. Honey, it's okay to be mad at me. I hear all the time from, from, from your mom, from my staff, <laughs> that I move so fast, it feels like I'm not open to input. And that can be frustrating. So tell me why you're mad and what I did, because I want to hear. It would have been easier just to be done with the conversation. And so we processed through that. And every time she wanted to cut it off soon. Okay, I think we're done talking. Honey, I think you're still mad at me. I guess I am. But a pleaser needs to be given freedom to be mad. And I realized I had really set a pattern of not giving her freedom to be mad. She always had to be the good one. And so I really, over the last couple of years, when she came home from college, I mentioned this about four months ago, I said, T tell me how I've screwed up your life and how I can apologize. Oh, Dad, you're fine. No, I really want to know. <laughs> and I dug and dug and dug and dug and dug until she finally said, well, you know, every time I was upset, you, you would, we'd go play a game or, or, or you'd go do something happy. I didn't really have the freedom to be sad. And I said, yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And we talked about that in the hot tub one day. My son, Javen, who's more of an avoider, you know, I always have one-on-one -on -one conversations with him. And we do express a lot of emotion in front of each other, but it's a lot longer time where it takes me, you know, 12 seconds to get to what I'm feeling and why. It takes a half hour for him to feel like he even has any idea. And so I've used different tools. And we usually have one-on-one -on -one conversations, and I don't do it in front of other people in the family because bringing emotions out, you would be a lot more careful. Third, how do we circle the board with your spouse. It's going to require setting down defensive weapons and exchanging them for investigation tools. See, many of us, the minute our spouse feels unhappy, mad, anxious, we immediately pull out the defensive weapons. We pull out the lead pipe and the gun. That's not exactly what happened. You shouldn't feel that way. That's not exactly true. We have every one of these. We got this candlestick and the knife and we're ready to go. And we're poor listeners. Because in one sense, whether the, what they feel is legitimate or not, it's how they feel. But because it's directed at us, we're like, give me a lead pipe. So part of the process of learning how to be a little less controlling is I've got to be a better listener. And the Bible says be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And yet we don't ever follow that advice. I've never, never yet found a couple who listens too well. 
Never had a couple come into counseling and go, you know what our problem is? We appreciate each other too much and we listen too well. And why is that? Because when someone starts talking, you pick up defensive weapons rather than investigative tools. So what we gave out last week was a tool. And the tool was twofold. One, how do you identify what you're feeling? And this you can download from our website to put this on your kitchen table. Because if you're an avoider, you have no idea. You've learned how to not think about what you're feeling. If you're a controller, you've learned to control your anxiety rather than talk about it. So to take that list with your kids, with your spouse, give yourself, say, I'm going to try this. It sounds like psychobabble, but can't be worse than what we're currently doing. I'm going to try and identify two things I'm feeling and why. Well, this week I'm feeling pretty uh, beaten down because of a board meeting I had. This week I'm feeling pretty betrayed because I had a friend who said they do this and they didn't. They did the opposite. This week I'm feeling disappointed. This feeling I'm high energy. I'm energetic. Oh my goodness. So excited about. And what you do when you just get a little better at this, you're inviting somebody else into your world. And for those of us who've wondered our whole life, what does our spouse mean when they say, don't fix it, listen? The other side of this is how to listen. To spend not two minutes, but 10 minutes, 20 minutes asking these six questions, helping to say, we don't need to control our anxiety. We don't need to avoid our anxiety. We need to actually enter our anxiety together to wrestle with each other. Tell me one thing this week that you're feeling and why. Can you pick three of the feelings off that list and tell me what's been going on with you? Scale one to ten. How strong are those feelings? I mean, if, you're, if you have a, a family member who feels an eight on confusion, wouldn't you want to know? If you have a family member who feels a seven on betrayed, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to create language and tools to be able to enter into and know and support each other? And aren't your current tools inadequate to be able to investigate that? And aren't your defensive tools working against that? So as mechanical and formal as it may feel, it's better than the current toolbox you have. Because here's the thing about a controller. Controllers are trying to deal with their inner anxiety. And so they put up walls. And those walls protect them from anything else getting in. Now, they don't know what to do with all the anxiety in here. But those same walls that protect you are the same walls that have become a fortress for your heart. And God wants to step over the wall and come in and say, let's start dealing with what's causing this anxiety. Putting yourself in the place of God and not knowing how to process your anger, not knowing how to process your grief, and not knowing how to deal with a world that continually feels out of control. Listen to the song by Sting and think about how your tendencies and habits to protect you might have become a fortress that's holding you back. One line is haunting, isn't it? In clap front. Yeah, thank you guys. That's a great job. That one line is really haunting, is the fortress you've made has now become the prison that's your home. It doesn't take a lot to make changes. It's simple, but it's not easy. Those adjustments start with catching yourself. As I've been going through this material for the last six months, I'm catching myself. Honey, I'm doing that thing again, aren't I? Yes. Begin by starting to catch yourself. Then begin to use those tools I gave you with your spouse, with your kids. Say, God, I feel like I'm mad, but I'm really sad. I'm getting hysterical. It's probably historical. 
Here's the thing, though. You can't not have walls. You have to exchange walls. There's a great verse in the Bible that says, God, you are my refuge. You are my tower. You are my shield I run to. The only way to really get away from that controlling tendency is to start by saying, i got somebody else I can trust. If I'm not in control, I need to trust somebody who is in control. That's the first step. Then your relationship's catching yourself and beginning to admit you're doing it and starting to change the dance. So I want to pray for all of us what our tendency is that God will begin. And maybe you want to pray with me this morning, something like that. Say, God, I want to do better. And maybe you want to admit that you've placed yourself in the place of God. God, I have tried to control things I can't control. And God, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for the damage it's causing me and the people around me. God, I need help. Teach me how to love more like you love. Teach me how to wrestle with myself and others the way you wrestle with your children. Search me and see the anxious way within me and be my tower and refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you next week as we talk about our pleasing tendencies. See you then.